Let's just pray. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts and the meditations of our hearts and minds be ever acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finish my work. Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Why, what hath my Lord done? What caused this rage and spite? He made the lame to walk. He gave the blind their sight. If you ever have about five or six hours free and you want to do it, um, read the entire Gospel of Luke straight through. And by reading it in that way, what comes out much more clearly is that there is this significant narrative of a conflict, really, between two families. On the one hand, the family of of Herod the Great and, and his ancestors and all of the people surrounding them, And on the other, Jesus and John the Baptist as as cousins and and the the challenges between the two. So from our Christmas stories, we we have of Herod the Great trying to kill the infant Jesus. um, And then his son, Herod Antipas, one of his sons, um, uh, executes Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, after dances of seven veils which I'm not going to reenact for you now um, and, um, and all kinds of weird things going on there and then there's this constant dynamic of abuse between the two until ultimately Jesus is sent by Pilate who wants to cover up his own complicity in the whole uh, sham trial of Jesus sends him to Herod to try and get past the buck onto Herod to prosecute Jesus and um, Herod just wants Jesus as some kind of performing miracle seal kind of uh, thing. And when Jesus won't comply, just sends him back to Pilate. But there's this constant challenge between the two families. And Jesus is rude about Herod. There's no two ways about it. And, uh, and there is a very strong antip- antipathy here. Herod's role is is unusual. Um, This is Herod Antipas, the son. Effectively, he's little better than a quisling, um, a a puppet leader. He is not actually allowed the title of king himself. Uh, The Romans appoint him to be a kind of aid governor, but not the actual governor, uh, as a kind of go-between between the people and the Roman authorities, that he's there to, yes, offer some um, quelling of sedition, but also supposedly trying to act as a go-between and just keep the peace. The Romans didn't particularly like it when people started trying to kill them, and so as a result, they, they, they tried to find puppet people to quell everything. There are narratives which suggest that the reason why Jesus and John the Baptist uh, had so much uh, angst against Herod and his family was uh, because of the sexual politics of Herod's family. 
if you look at it, the sexual politics is even more complicated than that of Fleetwood Mac, uh, which really is saying something, um, where everyone seems to have slept with one another in some grotesque fashion. It's a little bit like when you go to the deep south of America and you get introduced to somebody and they say, this is my wife, she's also my niece, my aunt, my mother and my grandmother, and you're trying to work out how on earth that really happened. Well, Herod's family is not too dissimilar to all of this. He takes his brother's wife, whilst the brother is still alive. Um, the wife is also his second cousin, but he also fancies the daughter of that first marriage. You could go on and on and on. It's odd, is all I'm saying. But I don't think that's actually where the, the issue lies between John the Baptist and, and Jesus against Herod. It's the oiliness of the man. It's this constant greasing up to the Roman authorities, this constant trying to curry favor. Herod, if you go and read Josephus on this, Herod has about as many different roles over the years as it's possible to have. He keeps losing one battle, keeps gaining one region, losing it, and then being given another. He's constantly trying to suck up to the authorities, and occasionally they work out who he is, and then try and abandon or forget him. Even the Romans occasionally realise just how ghastly an individual he is. The classic playground bully. He will lie, cheat, threaten, bully anyone that he possibly can. And he is utterly colluding with a system of oppression and tyranny. Now, there are arguments that Herod Antipas is not the bad person that everyone tries to make him out to be. Um, he was the one who um, told the Romans to stop uh, forcing their coins with their uh, symbol of the emperor onto the Jewish people for when they went into the temple. He highlighted to them that this would be politically disastrous uh, as there could be no craven images going into the temple. He therefore ensures that Jewish rights are respected. But it's the same issue of the coinage that actually comes back when Jesus confronts him, when Jesus goes into the temple and overthrows the tables of the money lenders. It's because actually that system, although it could have been argued, preserved the Jewish rights, also helped line the pocket of Herod himself. There was corruption rampant in the system. Jesus accuses him of being a fox, crafty and wily, one who would do absolutely anything to survive. Herod Antipas is kind of the ultimate political survivor. But a fox, yes, can be crafty and wily, but you can also call somebody a fox if you view them as mere vermin, someone who is an absolute disgrace. So what is it that Jesus has as his challenge against Herod? Well, aside from the personal history of the fact that Herod's dad tried to kill him when he was a baby, and the fact that he's just gone and killed his cousin, it is this absolute system of oppression and tyranny of which Herod Antipas was a vital component. He is shoring up Roman governance of the area. Countless lives were placed into financial ruin as a result of his corruption. Why, what hath my Lord done? What caused this rage and spite? He made the lame to walk and gave the blind their sight. By Jesus' very ministry of inclusion, 
he is challenging Herod's system of governance, which was all about tyranny and about being an overlord. In Jesus' pursuit of peace, he demonstrates the violence inherent in the system that Herod is shoring up. So although Jesus, by his ministry of healing, is a challenge, that's not enough for Herod to become complicit in the plot to kill Jesus. Marcus Borg, in his extraordinary book, Convictions, highlights that actually it's because Jesus takes it one stage further. It's not just by Jesus' healing ministry, but by the fact that he's a public critic of the authorities and the way that they have put the world together. That is why, ultimately, they plot to kill him. It is everything to do with Jesus, both his ministry, but also his confrontation. Jesus, therefore, is entering into the political arena. Now, my grandmother, uh, there were two. One, nice and Methodist and normal. The other one would make Heinrich Himmler look left-wing. Um, and um, uh, she, she enjoyed being angry for no particular reason. And she was strident, I remember, when I was a child. Politics and religion don't mix. Now, aside from the fact that you wouldn't dream of talking with her about either topic, in fact, actually, the weather could be quite controversial, uh, from what I remember. But as far as she was concerned, if you claimed to be a religious person, you had no right to speak about politics whatsoever, and certainly no right to engage in it, because, shock horror, then things like conscience might start coming into play. Now, if she's right, then that means that there are no-go areas for God and that the church has zero right to speak out on matters of justice and peace. That the church, actually, by her position, has to negate its own rights within our democracy. We have no right to speak if she is right. That issue of conscience interfering with politics... I'm convinced she's not right. I think we need to find a way whereby, for all of us, what is the relationship between our faith and politics? Is it that your politics informs your faith, or is it the other way around, that your faith informs your politics? Because of your relationship with God, because of your understanding of other people being the children of God, how does that then impact upon how you view politics? Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth, when they were resisting the Nazi attempts at infiltration into the church in Nazi Germany, um, called this ersatz Christianity. Those people who want to qualify their Christian faith by saying, well, I'm a conservative Christian or a liberal Christian or an evangelical Christian, rather than just, I am a Christian first, and then everything else can flow out from there. Are we watered down ersatz with our Christian faith? How does our faith compel us to view other people? And how much do we mimic Jesus when he moves into that political arena where he absolutely masters and overcomes the concept of self-interest so much that he is willing to go all the way to the cross?
how are we to engage with politics? What we see with Jesus is time and time again that when he sees injustice, not the individuals, but when he sees the injustice, he challenges it. He cannot remain silent in the face of that which is so counter to the will of God. He proclaims, he lampoons, he resists. How often do we behave like him that we speak out when we see something that we know to be fundamentally wrong? And how often do we remain silent in the face of the storms of passion and the murmurs of self-will? Bonhoeffer, when he was in Nazi Germany, said that those who claimed to be Christian, that if they wanted that claim to be held with them, then they needed to speak out for those who were the victims, those who were the absolute oppressed. And he came up with the famous line, only the one who cries out for the Jews can sing Gregorian chant. Only those who are prepared to try and help those and, and help them escape from tyranny can actually claim to truly be Christian. Following Friday's events and wider, are we at the stage whereby maybe the, the reverse of that for today is only the one who cries out for the Muslims will be allowed to sing Wesley's hymns? The way of the cross, the way that Jesus is asking us to follow, is not the way of the sword or the assault rifle. It is absolute and utter self-denial. Speak out, but recognize that there will be consequences in doing so. And speak out not on your own behalf, but for those who are less fortunate, those who are vulnerable. Challenge injustice, but not by increasing injustice yourself. On Friday morning, people were gathering in one of the most peaceful cities in the world for prayer. And some person decided that they were legitimate targets and went around shooting them and would have carried on if he'd had the chance. I don't know what your feelings were after that. Helplessness, anger, horror, shock. Two years ago, I was in Manchester, and uh, the community I was serving was the community directly next to Didsbury, where the mosque was that uh, Salman Abadi supposedly was radicalised when he then went to carry out the arena attack. And I remember talking with one of my colleagues after whose daughters were, were injured in the attack, and trying to unpack that sense of horror and shock, of helplessness, of how do we respond to those who view the political arena as somewhere where it's only about injustice. It's only about using violence and horror and terror and fear. How are we to engage in this arena? Because we can start labeling and we can start doing that, oh, well, you know, uh, it's retribution. And we can start claiming that it's about religion. But actually, it's about fundamental issues within our own souls. How do we respond in all of this? Um, 
Alison Phipps, who is uh, a professor of uh, politics who's attached to the University of Glasgow at the moment, but is a New Zealander. Um, she also works with the Iona community, and she wrote something yesterday, uh, which I'm going to share with you now. There is something about the sanctuary spaces of schools, mosques, churches, of places of innocent gathering, learning, and of prayer being violated that tears us apart. Some of the dead are those who were granted protection, but all were at prayer. The Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, has been unequivocal, giving her strongest possible condemnation of the ideology of the people who did this, stating, you may have chosen us, but we utterly reject and condemn you. That this would be something to be remarked upon shows us how terribly world leaders have failed to be steadfast, as the flames of hate, of Islamophobia and racism in particular, have been fanned so successfully over the past few years. She goes on, in my mind are the words from Dostoevsky's brothers Karamazov. At some ideas you stand perplexed, especially at the sight of human sins, uncertain whether to combat it by force or by humble love. Always decide I will combat it with humble love. Loving humility is a terrible force. It is the strongest of all things and there is nothing like it. It's probably the best place to start anything, every day. She concludes, I'm at a table on the other side of the world, being offered generous hospitality by friends as I travel. I feel so helpless I can't do anything, says my host, pouring tea. And there she is, already doing something. Peacemaking is perhaps the world's most ordinary and even easy activity, at least on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not something that needs the super gifted to engage in it. It's what parents do between siblings. Share with your brother, don't snatch. That hurts when you do that to your sister. It's what comes with the offers of hospitality. Would you like some tea? It's in every greeting, most of which in the world's languages translate at depth into peace be to you. Maybe we can't do much about the situation in New Zealand, but we can do something every day in our own communities and institutions. We can't now prevent what has just happened. The horror has visited Christchurch, London, Paris, Manchester. Thoughts and prayers are not nothing but they are not the end of the response ever. So where do we go from here? I will be writing to our brothers and sisters at the Canterbury Mosque to express our sorrow at the attack and to offer to them our solidarity. But as has just been pointed out, thoughts and prayers, okay, they're not nothing, but they can't be the end of the response. So where do we go from here we increase the dialogue, we continue the talking, we pour more tea if we have to, we start to break down some of those barriers that are very clear and very present and very raw within our own nation, where people are being pitched against one another all the time. We behave as Jesus behaved, that loving humility, that humble love. And he takes that all the way to the cross.
And to do that requires courage and it demands that we overcome those failings within ourselves, those prejudices and racisms within us. And we lay them at the foot of the cross. So this Lenten tide, I ask you to join me in that path. Let us try together to find the strength for that loving humility. Let us try and find the courage to live as Jesus lived and to love as he loved. And in so doing, hopefully we might be signs of the peace that our world so desperately needs. May God bless us this Lenten tide and forevermore. Amen.